Chapter 8 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 Margaret of Parma. The governess of the Netherlands, Margaret, daughter of the late emperor and wife of Ottavio Farnese, Duke of Parma, sat in her chair of state in the small chamber leading to the council room, and before her were the three Netherland nobles who were the avowed enemies of Grenville, and who had complained so long and haughtily that they were no longer consulted, and that the regent took advice solely from the cardinal and his creatures, Barlamont, president of the Council of Finance, and Viglius, president of the Privy Council. Margaret favoured the cardinal. He had an immense influence over her, and she knew him to be as deep in her brother Philip's counsels as his father had been for thirty years in those of the emperor. But the situation in the Netherlands was increasingly difficult, and she dared not alienate men of such importance as the three that were before her now, the brilliant Egmont, Victor of Gravelines and St. Quentin, Horn, Admiral of Flanders, and Orange, the most powerful of the princes and stathholders and estates. She sat now erect, and a little drawn back against the burnished leather of her seat, rather in the attitude of one at bay. Her presence was majestic and graceful, with something of the commanding fascination which had made her father so popular. But the Flemish blood of her commoner mother told, too. She lacked refinement and softness. Her features were bold and haughty, her brow heavy, her upper lip shaded with dark hair. Her hands were large and strong, and seemed ill-adapted for the embroidery they now held. Indeed, her most notable accomplishment was horsemanship, as it had been that of her aunt, the former regent, Mary of Hungary. Her attire of gold brocade and black velvet, stiff cap and flowing veil of black tissue folded over her shoulders, was more rich than tasteful. She wore no jewelry nor adornments, for she affected a masculine strength of character and disdain of detail. Her needle went in and out of the embroidery, but the work was largely a pretense, and the flower she was making was stitched false, for her full brown eyes were continually glancing from one to the other of the three before her. Count Horn was speaking, in words slow but full of intense feeling he was putting before her the noble's case against the cardinal. The admiral stood by the pointed window on which gleamed the arms of Brabant in the leaded glass. A grave and gloomy figure, dark and careless in attire, with a haughty and rather sad face, brooding eyes, a discontented brow, and black fan-shaped beard. Standing behind him, leaning against a side-table covered with a small cloth of Persia, was Lamoral Egmont, the famous soldier, the popular grandee, knight of the Golden Fleece, Stathelder of Brabant and Artois. Half his exceptional popularity he owed to his unusual good looks, his beautiful head with the brown curls carried so splendidly, his soldier's figure tall and strong, his noble port the brilliancy of his attire. His silk and brocades, jewels and gold, showed the more gorgeous now in contrast with Horn. Leaning against the wall near him was the Prince of Orange. He had a quiet air, and his head was bent forward on his ruff. He was not so magnificent as Egmont, though his appointments were very splendid. And always Margaret's eyes were flashing up covertly from her sewing and measuring the somber proud speaker, the gorgeous grandee behind him, and that third figure with the bent head. Horn finished at length, bowed to the regent, and looked at his colleagues. You 
bring vague accusations, princely count, said Margaret. Her voice was heavy, and she spoke haltingly, for she was at ease with no language save Italian. It would seem that there is nothing against the cardinal but private spites and malices. There is against him, replied Lamor Legment, that he usurps our place in the council, as we have endeavored to show your royal grace. The embroidery trembled in Margaret's fingers. You blame him for much that he has not done, she said, as the bishop Oryx. Do you tell us, cried Horn impetuously, that the cardinal did not urge these bishoprics at Rome? Nay, replied the duchess. They were intended in the emperor's time, before I or, or the cardinal came to the Netherlands. At least he enforces them and enjoys the finest, persisted Horn, unconvinced. Margaret lifted her bold eyes. They were angry eyes now. He enforces them, she said, because it is his majesty's wish, and the cardinal is loyal. I would all were as he... And why are these bishoprics so odious? Methinks they should be comforting to good Catholics. She darted a sharp glance at the Prince of Orange, since they are designed to strengthen the ancient faith and rout out heresy. They are designed to support and spread the Inquisition, replied Horn bluntly, and that is a thing odious to these states. The Spanish Inquisition shall not be introduced, answered Margaret. That has been promised. There is no need to introduce it, said the admiral dryly. The Inquisition of the Netherlands is more severe. The people will not take it, indeed they will not, said the stathholder of Brabant earnestly, as witness the disturbances, riots, and revolts at Tidelman's executions. We are not talking of the people, replied the regent with bitter vexation, nor of their grievances, but of the great lords who foster all this sedition, and seem to have a marvellous sympathy for heretics. "'We have a marvellous respect for the charters and privileges of the states which are in our keeping,' said the Prince of Orange, "'in which the Inquisition utterly defies and overrules.' Tears of vexation sprang into Margaret's eyes. More than either of the other two was this prince vexatious to her. "'A prince,' she said. We know your dispositions. You hide yourself behind the states, behind charters and privileges. But, as my brother said, in the matter of the Spanish troops, it is not the states, but you. And I perceive it. Never believe but that I perceive it. William very slightly smiled. I have never failed in duty to the king he replied, nor loyalty to the church. And in protesting against the cardinal and his measures, I do believe, madame, that I serve the best interests of both. It is well, said Margaret bitterly, for you to speak of loyalty to the church when your palace shelters heretics and you have a Lutheran wife. I had his majesty's consent to my marriage, said William quietly. A reluctant one, returned the regent, and his majesty is still not pleased that you should choose the daughter of the elector Maurice. But that is past, she added sharply, then, with a thrust at the daughter of the man who had humiliated her father, though we think the match still imprudent. 
and marvel at it more than formerly. William received this reference to his wife with courteous indifference, and Margaret continued with raised voice, the deep color mounting to her hard face and the embroidery lying forgotten on her lap. Methinks it would be more dutiful and fitting if you offered to help me with your advices and influences, instead of filling my ears with complaints of the only man who is useful to me. Lamoral Egmont drew his magnificent person erect. "'We have no opportunity of aiding your grace,' he said, "'since we have been excluded so long from your councils.' Margaret trembled with anger. "'What do you want of me?' she asked, driven to desperation. That was too complex a matter for either the Prince of Orange or Count Horn to commit themselves to, but Lamoral Egmont, who was neither cautious nor wise, answered instantly, "'The withdrawal of Cardinal Grenvel from the Netherlands.' The Duchess rose in her agitation, sweeping her needlework to the ground. "'Oh! You ask no little thing of me!' she cried in her indignation. "'How think you the king would take that request?' "'Let your grace make it,' replied the Stathelder of Brabant, with a touch of insolence. "'And while we wait an answer from Madrid, let your grace counsel the cardinal to comport himself with less overbearing arrogance.' "'Arrogance!' flashed Margaret. What of the Count Brederode, who nightly, when in drinks, sports cardinal's attire at some public mask, and mocks and flouts his eminence with huge indecency? What of the pasquals that reach my very closet and are thrust under the cardinal's pillow? What of these vile rhetoric plays which no punishment can stop and which cheer at all holy things? We know none of any of this, declared Horn with rising anger. Henry Brederode is not my charge, replied Egmont, nor do I control his frolics. Margaret stopped short before him. What of the fox tails in your own cap? she asked. You wear them openly in the street. Do you think that I do not know of these things? The Prince of Orange here interposed. If the bishoprics in the Inquisition, the ancient placards and edicts, are to be forced on the people, there is no chance of the states passing the new taxes. These words instantly brought the regent to the practical part of the matter, and affected her more than any of the proud speeches of Egmont and Horn. The finances of the Netherlands were in a miserable condition. Philip was always demanding money, being continually embarrassed himself, and Margaret feared for her prestige, if not for her position, if she could not supply it, and cordially as she agreed with her brother's proposal to exterminate all heresy in his dominions, and greatly as she admired Grenvel's plans to carry their royal wishes into effect, she was shrewd enough to see that the prince had pointed out a real difficulty, and one that she had lately been acutely conscious of. At the same time, she disliked the prince bitterly for calling her attention to the stumbling block. "'Do you threaten disobedience? Rebellion?' she asked. "'I threaten nothing,' replied William, looking at her calmly. "'I speak of what I know of the states. "'The Stathelders will not enforce the Inquisition. "'The people will not submit to it. "'Rebellion? Who knows? "'The provinces have revolted before, madame, against the House of Habsburg.' "'Margaret was silent, her eyes narrowed with anger. "'Her sincere convictions were with the cardinal.' As an ardent Catholic, she loathed the heretics. As a graceful subject of her brother, she wished to obey his wishes. She was loyal, industrious, and ambitious to render a good account of her charge. She believed the men before her, and those whom they represented, to be greedy, jealous self-seekers, and she despised them as mere worldly courtiers, but to the Prince of Orange's argument she was obliged to listen. 
She was shrewd enough to see that these men knew the Netherlands as neither she, Philip, nor Grinbell did, and she respected the abilities of the Prince of Orange. She stood eyeing them all, her hand on her hip, her head well up. "'We cannot obey his majesty in both things,' continued William. "'We cannot enforce the edicts and raise the revenues.' Margaret knew this to be so true that she controlled her collar, though her eyes were bright with anger. "'The placards will not be enforced,' she replied. "'His Majesty waits the decision of the Council of Trent. "'If that allow a certain latitude to heretics, his Majesty will obey.' "'If not?' asked William. "'The Duchess flung out her hands with a gesture of annoyance and desperation. "'How do I know what the King will do? "'I am here to execute his orders.' I can but ask that the Inquisitors deal gently until some decision is known. The three grandees took this as a concession, almost a confession of defeat on the part of Margaret, as indeed it was nothing but a deep sense of the difficulties and perils of her position could have wrung such words from her. And your grace will advise moderation to the cardinal? asked William, taking up his hat. Do that errand yourself, noble prince, since you are responsible, replied the regent keenly. William unexpectedly laughed, and turned his charming face with a gay look of amusement towards the angry lady. "'Truly I will,' he said. "'His eminence and I used to know each other well, and I cannot think that old friendship worn so thin that he would refuse me an hour's hospitality at La Fontaine.' Margaret saw that she had been betrayed into an imprudence. "'Do what you will,' she said, "'but on your own authority.' "'Your grace is vexed,' remarked Horne, "'but we have done nothing but our plain duty.' "'God grant your grace may come to see it so,' added the courteous Egmont. "'And may he set great prudence and clemency in your heart, madame,' said the prince, still smiling, "'for we stand on the edge of chance, and may easily mistread.' Margaret dismissed them as haughtily as she dared, and as soon as they had gone sat down to write an agitated letter to Philip— full of the obstinacy of the Netherlands, the insolence of the grandees, the impossibility of obtaining money, and the virtues of the much-abused cardinal. The three grandees mounted and rode along the city heights, where their homes lay among pleasant parks and beautiful gardens. As they ascended the steep, winding streets, they could look back at the town lying in the hollow, ornate and gorgeous, proud and serene beneath them. The twin towers of St. Gadul rose majestically from above the clustered house roofs. Below them soared the immense spire of the town hall, and in the blue cloudiness and golden light of the late summer afternoon dozens of gilt weathercocks swung in the gentle breeze and glittered in the sun, and in and out of the crevices of the gables flashed the white wings of innumerable pigeons. The Prince of Orange glanced often at this prospect of the fair town, but Lamoral Egmont's eyes were for the bending knee and lowered head of passers-by, the curtsies of women spinning at the doors, the bright eyes of maidens peeping with admiration from behind the checkered casement blinds, and the admiral's gaze was straight before him, as if he saw nothing. "'Think you the regent mean what she said?' he asked at length. "'I think she was frightened.' said the stathholder of Brabant. "'She is not a clever woman,' remarked the Prince of Orange. He turned his head stiffly in the great rough and smiled at Horn. "'I think she will render an ill account of her charge. She grows more confused every day.' "'Why did His Majesty send a woman at all?' complained Horn fiercely. "'Because he wanted one not too strong,' replied William. "'It were wise to endeavor to restrain Brittorode,' he added. "'His jests against the Cardinal are very daring and may involve us all.' "'Who is to argue with Brittorode?' asked Egmont. 
He and Delamarc are beyond all reason, and if they're Jess Vex Grenvel, I am not the man to stop them. Grenvel smiles at Jess. There are better ways to discomfit him than the drunken frolics of Bredderoad, returned William. The conversation ceased, for they had entered a narrow street where their voices could easily be heard. Their talk turned on falconry. I wish I could get away for a while, said William. The elector gave me the prettiest hunting dog, as white as snow, and I would very willingly try him in the campaign. If I am to be ruined by falconers, I would use them, he laughed. Oh, Jesus, how they cost, sighed Lamar Legment, who was even deeper in debt than the prince. Never were the ducats so hard to come by, never were they so much needed. Grenvel is the ducats, broke out Horn, regardless of prudence. The abbey's benefices and plunder that have come his way would set us all at ease. And the admiral's swarthy face darkened with wrath and jealousy. Indeed, Grenvel's persistent greed, and the lavish manner in which Philip satisfied it, was the chief reason of the hatred in which the nobles held the cardinal, as his supposed patronage of the bishoprics and the Inquisition was the chief reason for the hatred of the people. William lifted his brows and smiled meaningly. Lamor Legman shrugged his shoulders as if he could not bear to consider the subject. And so they went their way slowly, their equipment shining in the sun. The children ran to the doors to look after them, and the women whispered, There go the two stathholders and the admiral. Look what splendid princes they are. End of chapter 8